Well, we've been talking about inheritance, and uh, I've been having a lot of fun with it, and uh, people are wondering about the chairs at the front and all that kind of stuff, and so <clears throat> just uh, really quickly, I want to recap some things from the last couple weeks before I get into this morning's message, and uh, so let's just take a few minutes to do that. When the disciples were with Jesus, right, we all know the famous passage where he said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. They got upgraded. But after the resurrection, we learned a couple weeks ago that they got upgraded again. They were adopted into the family. They were upgraded from friends to sons. And I pointed out how in the scripture, the revelation that I, I found back in April was that in the scripture, never again after the resurrection are, are we as believers referred to by God as friends. We're only referred to it in terms of family. We're only called sons, heirs, uh, daughters, you know, uh, uh, the bride even, but we're never referred to as friends again. You know, Paul might write to his friends here or whatever, but God never refers to us as friends again after the resurrection because we've been upgraded. We talk about the three chairs. Chair one is the kingdom of God. Chair two is the kingdom of self or the kingdom of salvation. It's where we, we the chair we come to when we first get saved because everybody's motivated to come to God because they have a need. So we get into that chair out of need. But God wants us to accept the invitation and go deeper, which is to come into uh, his, the invitation of his kingdom as a son. And then chair three is the kingdoms of this world uh, that we're all in before we meet God, right? So we've talked about that. And we talked about that we're not a slave or a servant or merely a friend, that you and I are sons. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. And then last week we talked about what it is to receive as a son or a daughter. The difference between a slave, a servant, a friend, and a son is revealed and is most revealing in receiving. Uh, what they, both what they receive and how. And then, remember this chart, right? A slave receives sustenance, just enough to get by. And uh, a servant receives a wage, what he's earned in exchange for his labor. A friend receives a favor. And uh, we might need to put the screen down just a little lower. And a son receives an inheritance, something that he didn't work for and he did not invest in. Oh, no, it's just chopped off, is it? All right. Uh, that's good. <laughs> Find the balance right there. There we go. So how do they receive it? A slave receives contemptuously. He has no love for his master in the normal sense of it, you know. Uh, a servant receives contractually. The servant is content. He's received what he's earned. A friend receives with gratitude, thankful that their relationship has been fruitful, right? But a son, and you can't see it there, a son receives with joy, a uh, son rejoices for he knows that he's loved, right? He knows that he's cared for. He knows that he was put into the family will. And the only way he got there was because of family connection, because of love. So everything we receive from the Lord, uh, the blessing from blessing to correction, we receive as sons. So how does I receive as a son? You might have to abandon earn deserve, that mentality, and dive into his grace for absolutely everything. Amen. So today, <clears throat> I want to explore that truth of receiving our inheritance as a son a little further, and I want to kind of take a sledgehammer to earn deserve. So um, this is going to be a message to sledgehammer earn deserve. If you are here this morning and you uh, have any kind of a religious attitude about your own works or any of that kind of stuff, this is going to be a hard message for you. I'm just warning you right now, going to be tough, going to be tough. And uh, the reality is, 
that I, as I've taken this journey in Christ, I've noticed that a lot of people that I talk to find the gospel message to be difficult to accept. They find it hard to grasp. And uh, it seems really tough sometimes more here than it is in other parts of the world. In our Western mindset and civilization, we have a hard time with it. And I want to just show you, put some phrases up here. See if you can finish these for me, all right? See if you can finish this for me and you'll get a bit of an understanding where we're going this morning. If you don't work, that's right, you don't eat. Pretty good. You guys are batting a thousand so far. Here we go. You get what you pay for, Jody. Come on. You get what you pay for. But I, I, I appreciate the participation, man. Here's your medal. There we go. All right. <laughs> you asked for it. You got it. That's right. All right. Here we go. You can pay me now. That's right. Or you can pay me later. Okay. You guys understand this game. Actions speak louder than words. That's right. Life is what? That's right. Life is what you make of it. What's good for the goose? Woo! Good to see some of these younger generations even getting some of these old phrases. You know, uh, every one of these phrases, and I'm sure there's way, way more of them, but the subtle, subtle messages behind every one of these is simply this, that your work is the deciding factor in the outcome of your life. Every one of those phrases is in one way or another telling us the same thing. Your work is the deciding factor in the outcome of your life, right? That's it. There is no other real deciding factor. It's just your work. Yet the message of the gospel is that the most important factor for determining your future and the rest of your life wasn't your work, but it was somebody else's work. It was the completed work of Jesus Christ, right? That's the number one determining factor for the outcome of your life. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you could say. There's nothing that, no work that you can accomplish that would bring about the glorious result that Jesus gives to you freely. That's the gospel. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not even a reward for good behavior. It's not. Even though some Christian denominations kind of peddle it that way, it's not. Does that sound incredible? Does that sound unbelievable? Does it sound suspicious even? I think so. And I think that's why a lot of people have a hard time with it. And in fact, the idea that we have a hard time with it is summed up in another phrase that I'll put up on the screen. And it says this, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. You see, that's the problem a lot of people have with the gospel. It sounds too good to be true. So we've been trained in our Western thinking, in our earn-deserve mentality, we've been trained that if it does sound good to be true, then it can't be true. If it sounds too good to be true, then it, then it, then it isn't true, right? Are you hearing me this morning? And that is how we've been soundly trained, you know, from the time we're little kids we have this, you know, kind of beat into us. And we've done a lot of good things uh, with that mentality. I mean, let's face it. Our Western civilization has accomplished a lot. We are in pre-service prayer. We're talking about, you know, how blessed we are to get in the shower. Hey, Mark, this morning, just you turn on the shower and you actually control the temperature. Anybody that's traveled in developing countries know that that alone is a miracle. How many showers in Africa did you have 
where there was, you could turn that knob any way you wanted, and it was, you got one temperature, it's called cold, right? Uh, you know, when I'm in Haiti, I always shower at the end of the day, because then the sun's had a chance to work on the big tank on the roof and heat the water up enough that it's bearable that I can get in it and not actually jump in and out and jump in and out and jump in and out to get my shower. Uh, you know, it's actually bearable. But if you have it in the morning after there's been no sun at all night and it's refilling from wherever source they have, whoo! Oh my word! It is cold. It is cold. So, I mean, I've learned to be thankful for the shower. I've done enough traveling around the world to be thankful for a shower. Oh, <laughs> warm water. Whew. Wow. I've been thank- I'm thankful for toilets. <laughs> I've, I've visited some pretty nasty uh, outhouses in my time. Uh, so I'm thankful for toilets. I mean, I didn't even, I, I, I had, all I had was an outhouse until I was 13. So I, I'm always kind of amazed every time I hit the light thing and it, it flushes. It's just like, this is cool. This is cool. These are all miraculous things. And you know what? And our forefathers worked very hard for us to have a country in, it, in which we could have and enjoy the blessings we have. And the whole earned deserve mentality is probably behind flushing toilets and hot water. Because we worked really hard for it. And we're able to pat ourselves on the back in the day and say, look what I did. Right? But there's a flaw in earn deserve. There's a flaw in it. And that flaw is that it, it hinders it. It makes it difficult for us to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I want to read you a passage. Let's look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 here this morning. And uh, verses 20 to 25. Listen to what Paul says. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to uh, to save those who believe. Look at this. Listen to this. Verse 22. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Isn't that a powerful passage? How many have read that before? You guys seen that before? That's a powerful passage, powerful truth in the Scripture. And it points out to us that, that you know what, the gospel... The gospel has not always been easy to accept, even for people in the first century. We have a hard time with it sometimes, but guess what? The Jews and the Greeks of the first century had a hard time with it as well. And, and Paul cites them as two separate groups, Jews and everybody else. You know, When they talk about Greeks or they talk about Gentiles, they're talking about the rest of the known world they were preaching the gospel to at the time. And so he puts two categories, and, and he talks about how, you know, to, the gospel was to the Jews a stumbling block. He says, a stumbling block to the Jews. Why was the gospel a stumbling block to the Jews? Why was it something that they tripped over? Why was it something that was difficult for the Jews to accept? See, the reason it was hard for the Jews is because the preaching of the gospel made the point that only through grace could one be redeemed. 
It was a stumbling block for the Jew because Jews could not accept that the redemption of creation was achieved both globally and individually apart from the law. Because for them, from the time of, of, of Moses bringing the tablet down right forward, everything was about strictly following the law. Then all of a sudden the gospel comes and, and Paul's preaching that, that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so that we are no longer under law, Paul says, but we are under grace. That was a huge stumbling block for, for the Jews. To try and convince them that, that all that they had invested in, all the work, all the labor, all the, you know, uh, making sure they followed the rules from, you know, not working from, uh, on the Sabbath from sundown the night before to sun up the next morning and all the rest of it. All the things that they've done and they'd adhered to all these years were, were basically meaningless. You could follow them all you wanted. It's not going to get you closer to God. It only comes by grace through faith. For the Jews, this, this was just overwhelmingly difficult to accept. See, their culture was earned deserve. It's all they ever learned. You keep the law, you're in good standing with God. You don't keep the law, you're not in good standing with God. Earn his favor. Deserve his favor. Work for it. Earn it, deserve it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That was the law. That was how they were raised. That was how you appeased God. And so for them, the message was a stumbling block. Grace was an insult. It can't be that easy. It can't simply be that easy. Can you get this mic on for me, please? The handheld? Is it on? I found this little button, you know. Sums it up for me. That was easy. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. You know, when you, when, you, when you hear it, this should be your response. That was easy. That was easy. It was easy. Everybody said to the person beside you, that was easy. The preaching of the gospel makes it simple for us. It's easy. It's easy. It, here's the thing about the gospel. To actually inherit life with Jesus Christ is that simple. It's like the push of a button. You flip the switch of your heart and you're focused to Jesus. You trust him, you're in. It's that simple. Now, once you're in, Jesus has a whole plan for you. And it's, and it's predicated on you staying close to him and living close to him. But you know what? All of that living and all that doing, which we'll talk about next week, all of it flows out of already being. You didn't, none of that work that you're doing ever gets you closer to God. You do it because you're already close to God. Amen. Are you hearing me this morning? That's why the gospel message is extremely easy. That was easy. It's easy. It's not hard. It's easy. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was a horrible, difficult stumbling block for the Jews. And uh, they could never seem to get past it. And uh, I got a story for you this morning that I want to read for you from the scripture that helps illustrate their problem. Uh, maybe I didn't put the whole scripture up there. I didn't. Okay, here we go. I want to read it to you from uh, 2 Kings. All right? This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Now, Naaman is a general in one of the pagan nation's armies. And Naaman has a problem. He's, he's got leprosy. He's got leprosy. And the king of his nation 
hears that there's a prophet in Israel who's been doing miraculous things. So he says to Naaman, listen, I'm going to send you to the king of Israel, and you can go and ask him for healing. So he goes and he asks the king of Israel, hey, listen, I'm here. My king sent me. Uh, I'm supposed to come here, and you're going to help me out with my leprosy problem. And the king tears out his clothes, which was a sign of anguish and of, of frustration. He tears at his clothes, and he says, what's the king doing? Is sending, does he think I'm a god that I can fix the guy's problem? He just is using this as an opportunity to go to war. That's what he's doing. He's trying to draw us into a war, and he's frustrated. Well, Elisha hears about it, and he says, just, hey, king, settle down, calm down, all right? Get your knickers out of a knot. Send Naaman to me, all right? And that's where we pick the story up here. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the spot, cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off and he went away in rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you to just go wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. I love that story. Now, Naaman walked away in that story angry. He was mad. He was mad. The first reason he's mad is because he was expecting an elaborate production. He was expecting an elaborate production. He even tells you in the short portion of scripture, he says, I thought that he would surely come out and stand out to me and he'd stand over me and call the name of the Lord and wave his arms and and do a bunch of stuff and, and, and work up a grand production. I was expecting something big. And then he, and he doesn't even come out to meet me himself. He sends a, a servant. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I'll come all the way from my country, from Damascus, to meet with this guy, and he doesn't even have the decency to come out and see me. He sends out a servant. I mean, I was expecting him to bring out his whole healing ministry to deal with me. But he didn't. And he was pretty frustrated by that. What he received instead of production was a simple instruction. Go wash seven times in the river. And man, was he ticked. Oh, he was ticked. Now, I got to tell you, I understand him. I was raised Catholic. Anybody here raised Catholic? Let me see your hands. Okay, so I was raised Catholic. Good to be in good company here. Uh, every month I went to confessions. Did you guys go to confessions? You're bad Catholics then. Is that what you're telling me? You didn't, you didn't go to confessions? How many of you went to confessions? Let me see your hands. Come on. Okay. I thought, man, and I'm in a room with a bunch of bad Catholics. All right. So, you know, every month I went to confessions, and I told the priest what I'd done. He prayed, and he granted me absolution for my sin. And then it was all predicated on what? What were you told to do? You had to go and you had to pray some prayers uh, of contrition, right? You had to go out and, and, and if, you know, and usually we were, you know, given, depending on how bad it was, depending on how long the repertoire of prayers were. Now, in the old days, I mean, now it's pretty easy, you know, say, you know, five Hail Marys and five Glory Be to Gods and five Our Fathers or whatever. But when I, you know, when I was young and my parents were young before me, they said there were times that the human, my dad remembers visiting St. Anne de Beaupre in Montreal as a kid, and there were people kneeling on every one of the concrete steps having to, to say act, uh, prayers of penance on every step uh, as, a, as a final act to bring about the absolution of their sin. 
And they would do that on every step. They would, and, and sometimes till their knees were bleeding. I mean, uh, praying uh, as an, uh, demonstrating to God that I am broken, I am repentant, and so please, will you forgive me? When all of that sin, how many know that when you come to Christ, your sin is taken care of? Past, present, and future. If I sin today, which in all likelihood, there's still quite a few hours left, it's going to probably happen, you know? If I sin today... How am I made righteous? By works? By going home and beating myself with a whip? No, I'm made righteous by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible does say I should repent, but what does that word mean? Does that mean beat yourself up? Repent means to turn 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction. It literally means to change one's mind, to move in another direction. So when I sin, and I know I've sinned, I I come to God and I repent. I turn and go in the other direction. But my sin is still paid for by Jesus. My sins until the day I die have been paid for by Jesus. And it's been applied to my life through faith. Not through works of righteousness, which anyone has done, but only by His grace. Do you hear me this morning? That's how it happens. That's how it happens. Now, uh, if we don't understand this, we're going to be in trouble. Now, Naaman, he was angry about that. But uh, we're not much different. We think there's some sacrificial thing I must do to earn my salvation or my miracle or my healing. And there simply is not. There is not. And I know some of you are looking at me and saying, but, but you know, what about fasting? What about fasting? Do you honestly think that you fast to twist the arm of God? Is that why we fast? If I fast and I got him in an arm, he's got to do what I want now. That's not why we fast. We fast to deal with our own flesh so that we can have closer communion with him. Not because he doesn't want to be with us, but because our stuff gets in the way of being with him. So we fast just to help tear down some of the walls that are there Because of walking around in this tent, not because we're trying to manipulate something out of God. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't fall for a half Nielsen or any other kind of chokehold. It just doesn't work on him. And we don't fast to manipulate God. We don't fast to change his mind. The Bible's already said he wants to do good things for you. Tom, does he want to heal you? Absolutely. Does he want to bless you? Does he want to take care of you? Do you have to twist his arm for it? Do you have to kind of convince him that this would be a good investment? He loves you. It doesn't work that way. Are you hearing me this morning? And and yet we struggle. We struggle and we struggle. Because in our culture, in our world, that's exactly how it works. In our Western civilization, and for a lot of good reason, that's how it works. When you show up, your employer has expectations and you've got to meet them or you don't get your paycheck. Right? Right? Instead, you get a pink slip, and you're out the door, right? So, I mean, let's face it. There's good reason for that. But we have to realize that the kingdom of God does not work that way. How many times have we sinned and felt guilt and shame, and then we repented to God, and we vowed vehemently we'd never do that again, only to do it again the next day or the next week or the next month, and then we're filled with shame again. So then we think to ourselves, okay, I've got to break this cycle, so how am I going to do it? Well, discipline discipline. That's how I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to make sure I read the Bible for six hours every day and then pray for another three. And then uh, I'm going to fast for 14 days a week. And when I get all that in there, then I'll no longer be tempted and I won't sin anymore. Do you understand what, how foolish that is? You're putting all the work back on yourself. As if you can discipline yourself enough not to sin. <laughs> oh, that's ripe. I'm telling you, that is so ripe. You know, I used to have a problem that I watched the news too much. I did. I'd watch it in the morning when I got right share. First thing I'd do in the morning, I'd have the TV on watching the news. And then I'd come home at lunchtime, I'd turn the news on, watch the news, TV on, watch the news again. At supper time, watch the news again, and I watch again before I go to bed at night. I was a news junkie. I watched the news, watched the news. Now, in my defense, it was before the internet, so you couldn't be a junkie from getting it from the internet. You had to get it from TV. So I had my four times a day repertoire down pat. News, 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 news. I got convicted about it because I was just, I was all getting negative because the news is largely what? So God convicted me about it. So I had a plan. I was going to beat the news beast. I took my TV and I locked it in the basement. And this was not a usable basement, all right? This was a storage basement. And uh, so the TV was, was just a little black and white thing anyway, because this is like when we were first married. But I, I locked it in the basement, didn't I, dear? Took it. You know, my wife couldn't watch TV anymore. Ryan wasn't going to watch TV anymore. Nope. Because dad was righteous, and I was going to discipline this body, and I was going to bury that TV. And that thing would no longer have a hold over this guy. And guess what? I went months, never watched any news. How righteous was I? So I thought to myself, I've defeated this thing. I'm victorious in Jesus' name. Sure, Sherry said, can we put the TV back out? Because I could use it for... You know, Ryan could watch some kids shows while I'm doing some stuff here during the day. It would be really handy. And, I mean, uh, you know, we could watch Treehouse or something like that. And I said, okay. So I thought, no problem. Because I have beaten TV. So we bring the TV out, hook it back up. I, I kid you not, first day it's up, what am I doing? Watching the news again. I hadn't become any more righteous all I lacked was opportunity. I lacked opportunity. Getting rid of the opportunity is not the same as a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of guys try to defeat porn the same way. Well, I'll get rid of the internet. I'll put some special software on my phone. I'll, I'll uh, you know, make sure I do this, do that. And, and, you know, and I see so many guys struggling today with porn. And I think, you know, they didn't struggle like 20 years ago. That's because there was no internet 25 years ago or whatever. So for a Christian guy to, you know, dabble with this, he actually had to go down to the corner store and risk getting caught. He had to try and find a place to hide the magazines or whatever, right? So, so it, was, it was a challenge 25 years ago. Now it's a lot easier. Are men more sinners and filthy, rotten people today than they were 25 years ago? No. They just have access and opportunity they didn't have 25 years ago. Because here's the real truth. You're only as righteous as your options. If you aren't walking with Jesus and the option opens up, you'll go for it every time. The only thing that's going to keep you from it is walking with Jesus and recognizing that it's because of him that I'm able to walk free. I don't walk free to get him to love me. He loves me. I can walk free. 
Do you see the difference? And it's only by enjoying that relationship and staying in communion with him can I ever, ever, ever hope to continue to walk free. And the minute that you break this relationship, you get out of connection with him, guess what's going to come back? The options are all there. All the sin's going to come back. Are you hearing me? That was for free this morning. And you see, this message, this idea that it's so simple that you just have to accept the grace of God and stay in relationship with Him is so hard for us to accept in our Western world because we think we can do it all by ourselves. And that's a lie. The other reason Naaman was angry is the foolishness to the Gentiles part. All right? You got to understand that Naaman was not Jewish. Naaman was not Jewish. He came to the prophet of the Jews and he shared some of the Jews' same frustrations and views that such relief couldn't be so simple, as we already saw. But he also suffered from the mindset uh, of the uh, Greeks, that the instructions of the prophet were just foolishness. They were just foolishness. His rational mind attempted to link the cleansing to the quality of the river. Right? He said, don't I have rivers back in Damascus that are better than any river in Israel? Right? And so he's thinking in his rational mind, right, his intellectual mind, this idea that I just by dipping seven times in the Jordan, I've, that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And so he is just ready to write it off, first because he was expecting the religious package, and then when he didn't get that, it was also because it insulted his mind. It insulted his mind. And he was angry. You see that all the time, the rational mind. The rational mind. If I just washed my own river, I could get a better result. The instruction of the prophet was ridiculous. It was an insult to his intelligence. Now, have you ever been to Israel? How many have been to Israel? Let your hands. You ever been to the Jordan River? The dude's got a point. That's the Jordan River. Now, if you put your hand six inches into the Jordan River, you can't see it anymore. It has got to be one of the filthiest rivers I have ever seen in my life. I mean, and I can't imagine it was any cleaner in his day and age when people had cattle and stuff, doing their business in the river and everything else, and it was just disgusting. These people have got real faith. They're being baptized in that water. Whew! I'm telling you, that is an accurate picture. You can't even see the poles where they go into the water. They disappear from sight. It is filthy. So I can understand the rational mind of Naaman saying, I got, dude, if, if cleansing comes by a river, I got rivers at home that, whoa, are way better than the Jordan. Way better than the Jordan. Let me tell you, you can actually see bottom. Do you know what I mean? It's way better than, if, if a dip in the river's all I need, then I'm not doing it in the Jordan. I don't blame him. I went to the Jordan. I said, shoo, I don't want to be baptized in that. I had this notion maybe I'd get re-baptized in the Jordan when I went to Israel. And I walked out. Nope, that's not necessary. I, you know, <laughs> one time was enough. I've already been baptized. Don't need to do it again. That's just a religious notion. Set me free in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. <laughs> the prophet's instructions were both a stumbling block, as they were to Jews, right? And foolishness, as they were to Greeks, to Naaman. The story covers both. And I think it's exactly how most people approach the gospel today. A stumbling block or foolishness or both. But then we have the story shifts. We've got some humble advice from his servants, right? He turns away in rage and the Bible says he starts to head home 
And then his servants rush after him and they say, Sir, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If the prophet had asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? If he'd asked you to, you know, drink this lotion, uh, potion, stand on your head, uh, you know, juggle for 15 minutes, do a few backflips, and then lay out in the sun and bake all day and your leprosy would be gone, you'd have done it. If he'd asked you some crazy production, if he'd have come out with a whole group of people and, you know, danced around you and waved his hands in the air and said a bunch of incantations, prayed and fasted for a week, you'd have, you'd have stayed here and done it. Well, then, if he just asked you to do something simple, just go down to the river and, and bathe seven times, why, why won't you do that? Why not do that? You know, get out of this whole earn deserve thing. Get freed from that. It's not going to happen because of what you do. It's going to happen because of the mercy of God. So he says, if, if the prophet, you know, asks you to do something simple, if he asks you to do something simple, then do it. That was easy. Right? If he asks you to do something simple, then why not do it? Why not just do that? Right? So Nathan, <laughs> Nathan couldn't argue with the simple logic that his servants brought to him. And they, they're probably thinking, we came all this way, dude. Just, just do what he said. Just do what he said. So I still don't think he was really convinced it would work. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because Nathan dipped himself in the river and he was healed. Now, I looked in every translation. They all translate it dipped. He was told to go wash, but he dipped right? He said, well, what's the difference? Well, why didn't it say that he went and washed in the river like the prophet told him, right? I think because this is what Nathan did. He went, oh, fine, fine. So he goes down to the river, and up here, down under, back out. And he was just, just going through the motions of fulfilling the simple obligation. I honestly don't think he's still expected to be healed. He was just going to, the Bible says he dipped. It doesn't say he washed like the prophet said. He dipped. He went down and did it. And guess what? When he came out in the seventh time, just because even though his heart wasn't in it, he obeyed. Even though his heart wasn't in it, he obeyed. He was still healed. That's the mercy of God. What was God saying? You know what? It's just about your heart. It's just about, about being obedient. It's, it's not about the motions. It's not about how hard you scrubbed or anything else. It's about fulfilling the obligation to just do what I said. And he went down dead. Even though he did it half-heartedly, he was still healed because God is a God of his word. Amen? Amen. Are you hearing me this morning? I think that's part, an amazing part of the story to me. And, and literally, I thought it was just an NIV thing. So I went New King James. I went New American Standard. I went King James. I went all of them. They all said dipped, 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 dipped. I think he was just like, fine, fine. How many of us obey God the same way? Fine. And then you're shocked when you realize he still came through. Why? Because he's, he's a God of his word. And when you get that into your heart, that he's a God of your word, you can actually step out in faith and do some pretty crazy things because he says what he means and he means what he says. Amen? Wow. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good story. God wants to set everybody here this morning free from earned deserve. God wants to lead you into your inheritance not as a servant or even as a friend, but as a son. He wants you to step into what is yours as a son. You have privilege because you're a son. You have access because you're a son. We've been talking about this for weeks. 
to be a son, then you'll know what you have, your inheritance, and then you'll be able to do what God's called you to do. But the world does it the other way around. If I go out and do and I do and I do, then I'll become a doctor, a carpenter, or whatever, and then I'll have a practice, a home, a business, whatever. God works the other way around. Be my child. Have all that I've made access to you. And then from there, you can do anything. I can do all things through Christ, who gives me strength. Not because I'm good and pure and holy, but because it's my inheritance in Jesus' name. Am I making any sense today? Moving from chair two into chair one is trusting God. It's trusting God. It's about embracing who you are. It's about accepting what you have been given. It's acknowledging what is yours. Acknowledging what is yours. Because Jesus paid the price of my redemption, then I'm forgiven. I have been adopted. Everybody say, have been. I am a son of the king. And because, here's where it gets great, because I'm a son, I'm an heir. Everybody say that. Because I'm a son, I'm an heir. Because I'm an heir, everybody together, because I'm an heir, I have all I need. Because I have all I need, I can complete every assignment he gives me. This is how the kingdom of God works. Flip this around and you're going to be frustrated the rest of your life. Do it this way, do it this way, and you are going to have a remarkable life. That is why living in chair one is being able to say, That was easy. Come on. That was easy. Now, some of you might be sitting here and saying, Dude, what are you peddling? My life as a Christian has been anything but easy. I didn't say that life was all going to be easy. What I'm talking about is being in right connection with God is easy. That work was done by Jesus. Now, as we start talking next week about once you start living this life, there, you, you can expect to be persecuted, right? The Bible says, all those who are godly shall be persecuted. You can expect that. In fact, if you're not persecuted at all, chances are you're probably not shining too brightly. Hello? Just saying. Doesn't mean you need to go out and be an idiot to get persecuted and then pat yourself on the back and say, well, I must be living right with God now. I got persecuted today. I don't, I'm not saying you go looking for it. I'm just saying the reality is at some point, your faith is going to come in conflict with what the world wants you to do. Want you to cheat at work, cheat in your income tax, do this, do that. You know, it'll happen. You'll get persecuted. You also have to realize, you know, the enemy is going to do everything he can to fight you. So not every day is going to be peaches and cream because the enemy, he wants to cause you to trip up. And that's going to happen too. And then there are some things that do require discipline. But they're not the things that determine whether you're saved or not. That's the point that I'm trying to get to. All the stuff to do with my salvation, all of it is easy. All of it was done by Jesus. Once I'm saved, yeah, there's work to do, and that's what we're going to talk about in the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about what it looks like to work from my place as a son instead of for a place as a son. We're going to talk about what it is to 
work from the place of inheritance instead of working for an inheritance. We're going to talk about what it is to, to treat our relationship with God as though I'm sitting around the living room with my heavenly father and he's talking family business with me and I get up from that living room and I go out into the world and I execute what my father's empowered me to do and what that looks like. See, that's what we're talking about. I'm not some delusional fairy dust preacher up here just saying, oh, believe Jesus and everything will be wonderful. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the work that's required to have that relationship with Jesus is exceedingly easy because Jesus did it for you. Jesus did it for you. And the work to require inheritance, already done. Jesus did it for you. And because I am who I am and I have what I have, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I'll need the strength because sometimes the battle's going to be hard and sometimes the enemy is going to throw everything at me and sometimes it's going to take a lot of work. But I'm not working to get God's favor. I'm working because I have his favor. Are you hearing me this morning? And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what it is to work from that place as a son and an heir and an empowered person coming out from the living room of God and impacting our world. Amen? Doesn't that sound exciting? That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And that, folks, changes everything. Because when you stop working to please God and you start working because God's already pleased, (laughs) you work totally differently. Totally differently. Oh, man. I'm, and I'm telling you, I spent, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an expert on this topic. Because I lived in earned deserve as a Christian for many years. I sat in chair two for a good part of my ministry. And I'm telling you, I got results. I could beat people up with the law, and I could get results. I could tell youth that they're going to hell because they're doing this, this, and this. I was so good at it so good at it. And then God stopped me one day and he said, do people go, really go to hell because they sinned? Or do they sin because they're already going to hell? And are people lost because of, you know, this incredible weight of things that they do? Or are they lost because they don't know God? You see, and I started to reevaluate the whole thing and I realized, I realized that, that people are lost because they just haven't found God yet. They're looking in all the wrong places. When they get connected with God, lost is over. And it isn't about working and doing or anything else. It's about being connected with God. Oh, so you're saying you're soft on sin? Not at all. I believe in the convicting power of God for sin. But I don't believe that all the repenting and and sackcloth and ashes is going to somehow secure my salvation. It was secured by Jesus. And I'm able to go out into this world, live free from sin because of Jesus. Not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but only by his grace has he saved you. Amen? Let's stand together this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm pretty happy. Mm -hmm. I tend to do that, preach myself happy a lot. And you guys are happy. You're turning around, you're going, is it 25 after? And he's done? Wow! It's a miracle. I just thought, you know, that's how much I like ice cream sandwiches. And I didn't want them to be melted. So you saw Mark get up and leave. He probably set them out on the counter. And I'm just kidding. They're going to come right out of the freezer right now. But anyway, I just want you to know that it's a pleasure to have you here. And it's an honor. My wife and I never take for granted to have you taken the journey with us. 
And uh, you know what? <clears throat> I realized a long time ago that earned deserve can get results. I mean, I got results in ministry that way for many years. But you know what? They didn't tend to last. And, uh, you know, sometimes it caused an offense or it caused people to run or it caused this or it caused that. And, it, and I wasn't even happy myself. And then many times I stood behind the pulpit hypocrite because I wasn't living what I was asking everybody to do. And I said, there's got to be a better way. And God said, well, as a matter of fact, there is. And he began to tear away earned deserve and replace it with the gospel of his kingdom, a gospel of grace. Are you hearing me? And guess what? This is way gooder. <laughs> and, it, and I learned it just keeps getting gooder and gooder. Are you hearing me this morning? It is so much better his way. So much better. So, Father, we just thank you this morning. We thank you for your way. We thank you, Lord, that, Father, uh, this morning, none of us here has ever done anything to deserve or earn your favor. Father, we have been blessed because, Father, you love us. We are, by very nature, objects of blessing and love. You died on the cross because you loved us. You gave your, yourself for love. You, you opened up the, the vast wealth of the world and you made available. And the Bible says you, you've made all of my needs met through Christ Jesus. You made all my needs just because I am, not because I do. And Father, I thank you that because of that revelation, I can go out and do things and I can accomplish things I never thought possible because I know who I am and I know what I have. So Father, today in Jesus' name, would you just set us free? May we, if we're struggled at all today with this message, go back over it again and again and again. And Father, listen to it again and again this week and finally crucify the whole earned deserve mantra. Get rid of it, lay it down, destroy it. Because Father, the rest of my life, I'm going to work as a son. I'm going to work as an heir. I'm going to work knowing what, who I am and what I have and so what I can do. What I can do is going to be amazing. Father, bless today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.